Good morning and welcome to each and every one of you here this morning. I have been uh, richly blessed already being here. Um, the passage that Ivan read, that prayer, is one that has I have claimed for myself and for our church here for the last number of years and have repeatedly uh, prayed that and it's so rich um, and so um, somebody said packed full of uh, things. <clears throat> this morning um, we're going to be looking at a, a passage of, of scripture uh, together. We're going to continue in 1 Corinthians there's a lot uh, about this uh, coming this morning that gives me a little bit of um, trepidation, if you will, uh, given the subject that we're talking about. Uh, in some ways, I would have been more comfortable having an Advent focus this morning, uh, but that's not where the Spirit guided me, and so I want to try to be faithful here. <clears throat> The first four chapters of 1 Corinthians dealt with divisions and factions that had developed within the church there for a variety of reasons. Paul made it clear in various uh, ways that in Christ there is unity. That simply put, Christ unites, Satan divides. And so when there's division, when there's things, there's something going on there beyond what Christ is doing. Then in chapter 5, Paul abruptly changes subjects, just, just like that, to a, address a glaring issue that the church there had been unwilling to tackle. Church discipline was needed and was simply not being carried out for whatever reason. And, and so that's going to be my focus this morning, is looking at chapter 5. Church discipline is an important responsibility of the church that in looking around us, um, and just from my own experience, I would say is frequently overlooked by many churches and then is also abused by others. And as a result there just simply aren't a lot of churches that faithfully practice church discipline as it is taught in scripture. And, and so I want to be looking at this this morning, and obviously the text is, is, is 1 Corinthians 5, so that's going to be our focus, but I will elaborate beyond that a bit. And I've entitled this morning's message, Sin in the Church. Um, I'd like for us to stand as we read this chapter together, and I'll be reading from the King James Version. So if you would stand, please. <clears throat> it, is reportedly com it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily, as absent in the body, but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my spirit 
with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to accompany, not to accompany with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I have written it to you not to keep company if any man is called a brother, be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner, with such an one know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within. But them that are without, God judges. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. <clears throat> you may be seated. Going to walk down through this passage, um, certainly not just phrase by phrase, but verse by verse, or you know, with several verses at a time, and just evaluate a little bit what's going on here and see how this applies to to our lives today and so forth. And the first several verses here really, I believe, point out um, the first, uh, I think it's five verses, that, that sin shames and brings reproach on Jesus Christ and his body. And that is just the reality. If there is, and I, I have purposely not modified the word sin. I had thought about putting unconfessed sin or unrepentant sinners and so forth. But this is in the context of the church. And so it is just simply sin. Sin shames and brings reproach on Jesus Christ and his body. Reading these first two verses from the English Standard Version, uh, I, I, while I read from the King James Version, I'm also going to be referring to the English Standard Version because I believe that there are some of the terminology is clarified with other translations. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him that has done this be removed from among you. That's the first two verses. So the church here in Corinth was knowingly complicit with a man in their midst who was living in an adulterous and incestuous relationship with apparently his stepmother um, because it says his father's wife. Uh, so we'd assume that it was not his mother. We don't know any details about this man other than what is actually in that first verse really is about the extent of the details that we know. But given that the church did not address this issue and his lifestyle and the choices that he's made, I think that we can probably assume several things fairly safely. One, I suspect he was wealthy and powerful man, probably very influential in the church. Uh, you know, he may have been a major donor. 
or even had a leadership role of some kind, either in the community or perhaps uh, in the church. And, and because of that, they were just simply unwilling to deal with and address this and take uh, disciplinary action. They condoned this man having a public relationship, perhaps cohabitating with his stepmother and not taking any kind of action about it, or at least not adequate. We don't know whether they took any action, but at least not following through on, on this whole process. Since Paul only addresses the man in this relationship, it seems probable that the woman was not a believer and because she is not addressed in this at all. But Paul doesn't mince words. He says the pagan Romans wouldn't even tolerate this kind of relationship, yet the church is. The church and the man himself, I mean, he declares them as arrogant. And I think that's a good way, proud, puffed up. They were, they didn't, they almost flaunted this, that they weren't doing anything. And yet they have no regard about the shame, the incredible reproach that this situation brought on them as a church, and ultimately Jesus Christ, because he's the head of the church. They were flaunting this cheap grace, um, you know, that the freedom in Christ, if you will, as a justification to live as they pleased without regard to God's character and his principles. God tells, uh, Paul tells them that they should be in tears. They should be mourning. They should be grieving about the pain that this brings on Christ. Then he concludes with a, just a simple statement that this person in here in verse 2, that he needs to be removed from the church. There was just no question, but he was. Paul obviously knew enough about the situation to clearly state, make this bold statement. He knew enough about it that he, uh, this needed to be stated right up front. Now think about it. A person cannot be removed from a church if they have not joined the church. Uh, or if they're not members of that church, if they're not a part. And so, obviously, there was some kind of defined membership or, um, yeah, of, of the church at this time. And it was understood by everyone in the church that this man was a part of this local body. And that the church had both the ability and the responsibility to remove him because of his sin. You know, a church has no authority uh, and no ability to discipline a person that is not committed to that local body. Uh, they can admonish, they can encourage, but they, there is no, no ability to take any kind of action or, uh, or do any kind of discipline if they are not a part of that local body. So, you know, clearly without defined membership, church discipline can't happen, um, just in a, from a logical perspective, just think about that. Apparently, Paul also knew that this situation had progressed to a point where very decisive action needed to be taken by the church. It was a public and disgraceful stain on the church that required immediate action, and Paul 
was like, this man needs to be removed. Not only was he doing what was wrong, uh, he was flaunting it, and therefore he needs to be publicly removed. It's not just something that is done privately, but it, there's a public aspect to this. And then he continues, the, for though I'm absent in body, I'm present in spirit, and if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. <clears throat> There's four phrases or statements or steps. I'm not exactly sure how to um, state it, but the progression here and what is stated in verse 4 here, I believe, verses 4 and 5, is very critical. When you're assembled, when the church is assembled, with the power of the Lord... Deliver this man to Satan so that he may be saved. So, I mean, it's very clear what he's outlining here. So, first of all, when the church is assembled in the name of Jesus, we don't think about it. We don't recognize it a lot of times. But I believe that something supernatural happens when a group of believers committed to each other gathers, like we are doing here this morning. There's just something supernatural that happens. Uh, it's not just a social time of fellowship. It's not, but there's something far greater than that. It's not the location. It's not the building. But it's the people, the believers, the members of that local body. When you gather, when you're assembled in the name of Jesus, the disciplinary action that Paul describes here was not to be taken privately, but publicly when the church is gathered for worship. Because he's saying here, so this person is to be removed, but then he says right here in verse 4, when you are assembled, that's when you're to do this. And he says, with the power of Jesus Christ. While the church takes action, it's not done in their own power. This is not something that the church is just willy-nilly doing, but the church is doing so in the power of Jesus Christ. The church is the embodiment, the representation of Jesus Christ on earth until he returns. Until then, Jesus has given the church the power, the authority, and the responsibility to act on his behalf. Matthew 18, 18 says this, truly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus has delegated to the church the power and responsibility to take disciplinary action within the church. Now, that's not to say that it's never, this is never abused. I am not saying that because we probably all know of examples where it has been. But that power and authority and responsibility does lie there within the church. And then he continues, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of fl the flesh. I don't know what this all means, um, especially for the destruction of the flesh. I'll say that right up front. But there's been a lot of debate and diverse interpretations of what this exactly means. Another time that Paul uses this terminology is in 1 Timothy 
It says, among you are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may not learn not to blaspheme. So Paul uses the idea of handing over to Satan in another example. I think that it's safe to conclude that this means, uh, well, several things here. One, there's two kingdoms. When a person is not a part of God's kingdom, represented through the church, then they simply are in Satan's kingdom. And, so, and also, like I said, there's a supernatural aspect of gathering and being a part of a body. When I believe there's a level of protection from Satan for those who are members of a local gathered church. And so when a person is removed or separated from that local body, that protection is no longer there, and therefore Satan has greater access to that person, and they have been delivered into Satan's realm, if you will. And so this is a public spiritual declaration that a person is living in sin and refuses to repent, and the church cannot validate such a person's decisions and lifestyle, and therefore removing them. So that he will repent and be restored. I mean, uh, it's, it's, for, it's not, the goal of church discipline must always be about restoring such a person to fellowship with God, as well as the church. Um, Galatians 6, first couple of verses, brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear you one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. It's all about restoration. It's about restoring. It's about redeeming. None of us are perfect, and uh, we all need help from time to time. But the discipline then of removal from membership, what Paul is addressing in chapter 5 here, is the final step in a multi-step process that should have taken place that is intended to be a wake-up call to the seriousness of the choices that are being made. And it's clear that this behavior that is described here in verse 1 is unacceptable to God. <clears throat> just a bit of a, I mean, just to highlight the process, if you will, I'm going to read Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. And this is a familiar passage to uh, probably all of us. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that in every charge, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. You know, these, these verses just give a step-by-step -step process. There, there's, there's a sequence of things, uh, and probably not every situation exactly follows every one of this, but, but the idea is that there be... Um, that you don't give up on it, but you keep working at it and to, up to the point that it's actually brought to the church and, um, 
and resolved either through the removal or through, uh, through public admonition. So these two verses, four and five, really concisely, I think, explain how the, the, this final step of this disciplinary process of removing from, uh, from membership or excommunication. <clears throat> the next several verses, verses six through eight, just kind of explains or illustrates how sin contaminates the church. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may have may be a new lump as you are as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In the Old Testament, Jews were to get rid of all yeast in their house prior to the Passover each year. Um, it's not that they didn't use yeast, as I understand it, but it was just leading up to Passover, that was to be completely eradicated, and the bread that they ate at the Passover meal was unleavened. And Paul clearly is using yeast as an illustration of sin here in this uh, passage. Only the smallest amount of yeast will change the, um, the whatever, the texture, the outcome the, of an entire lump of dough. It doesn't take much, uh, but it has an effect throughout that entire lump. It changes the composition. And in a similar way, sin within the church affects the entire body. It's not isolated. You know, we may choose to believe that what I do privately that no one else knows about, even if it's sin, that it doesn't really matter. But this indicates that's simply not true. When we do that and we don't address that, it actually has effect on each and every one here in ways that we don't even understand. And certainly, if no one's aware of it, they don't know why it is, but there, it has an impact or what's going on exactly. If we have a private indulgence of sin, even though no one knows about it, it will affect everyone. It affects the rest of us. Cancer is a horrible disease. I mean, we just heard um, Nate talking about his mom dealing with that. In simplest terms, as I understand it, and I'm not a medical professional, but cancer is simply when certain cells within the body go rogue and basically don't do what they were designed to do. And I think that's also another beautiful, or a good picture of sin in the church. When cells within the body, when members within the body refuse to submit to the headship of Jesus Christ as designed, it's going to have an adverse effect on the entire body. Chemo and radiation are attempts to kill these rebellious cells in the body and keep them from reproducing and spreading to other parts of the body. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But the idea is to rid the body or it will contaminate and infect and eventually could destroy the rest of the body. <clears throat> a couple of verses a little bit later from in Colossians 1 from where Ivan read this morning, verses 21 to 23, 
And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of, the, of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under the sun, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. But the idea here is that Jesus wants to present you. Um, this is probably, could be talking to individuals, but it's written to the Colossian church. I would say that it's referring to the church. To present you as a church, holy and blameless and above reproach, before him. That's not possible if there's sin in the church. Jesus has redeemed us individually, but also as a local assembly of believers from our sins, reconciled us to God so that he can present us blameless and holy and above reproach. The church discipline is the process God put in place to purify the church by eradicating and removing the leaven, the cancer, the sin that's there. And then continuing in verse um, 9. And here, I simply labeled this section or entitled that the sin has consequences. So, first of all, sin shames or defiles, brings... Um, shame on, on the church and on Jesus Christ. Secondly, it contaminates and it also has consequences. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters since they, then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Paul had apparently written another letter to, first, to Corinthian church that we don't have record of. See there in verse 9? I wrote to you in my letter or in my epistle not to associate with sexually immoral people. So this is not the first letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. Obviously it wasn't preserved for us, so this comment in verse 9 is all that we know about that letter. Apparently, some in the church believed that Paul was instructing them not to associate with immoral people or sinners outside the church, the unbelievers in society. But that's not what he meant. And so he's clarifying that. And he says what he meant is that they shouldn't associate with those type of people that are within the church, members, the so-called brothers and sisters. And then he just emphasizes later here that, you know, Neither he nor the church there has any disciplinary responsibility regarding the actions of those outside the church. That's up to God to judge that. But what the church has responsibility for is to address issues within the church. And the church's responsibility is regarding those who are members and part of the church 
and so it, and be responsible for that because that's what's delegated to the church, and um, and so that these several verses, and I mean, and there, I'm not going into much depth here, but the, these end verses, several verses here, have generated a number of perspectives that have led to several church divisions, at least, um, since the Reformation, and that's probably putting it lightly. But in particular, the division between the Amish and the Mennonites, and I did not dig into history for specifics on this, but as I understand it, that that is what divided the Amish and the Mennonites is how you apply these verses here at the end of this chapter. The Amish interpreted this shunning or ban from eating together to include all meals. Uh, and I am generalizing here. I know that this is not totally true in all cases, but as, as I understand it, you know, whether it was a family gathering, a wedding, or funeral, whatever, it was like that was what that meant. Where the Mennonite interpretation was more limited that this ban or this shunning to apply only to the communion and the Lord's Supper. And so that, in general terms, was what this division was. And there have certainly been other church groups that have had similar disagreements. Uh, the Amish and the Mennonites aren't the only ones um, throughout history. Just giving a little bit of my personal uh, perspective or uh, mindset, I would say that I grew up more or less with a mindset like that of the Amish, although not nearly as clearly defined. I mean, that's just kind of the thinking that I would have grown up with. I suspect that that's largely because the churches that my parents grew up in came out of the Amish, and so that is the roots that we came from. My dad left the Amish church when, there was a, when he was about 16, and it was actually when an entire Amish district became a beachy church. So it's not like he just left the Amish church, but it was a a change of an entire district, an entire church changing. So he was never shunned by the Amish in any way um, through that. My mom has not been part of an Amish church since she was three years old. Her dad, an Amish bishop, left because of the immorality among the youth in that church. He was shunned for leaving the Amish, and mom has uh, had stories or she recalls that there's times when as a girl they would be walking down the street in town and someone coming the other direction would cross the street to avoid meeting them on the sidewalk and um, it would be other Amish that you know they were shunning them and uh, recognize them and so forth and this included relatives that she has never to this day never learned to know um, and so that is my parents' uh, experience with some of this. Prior to moving to Virginia here and becoming a member of this church, I had no firsthand experience or clear understanding about the church disciplinary process, if you will. At Hillcrest, where I, most of my growing year, up years was there, I grew up in a church that had between five and eight members and about 40 young adults that were from other churches that rotated through there every year. And so it really was not a 
normal church in by any sense. You know, and I heard of excommunication and church discipline in other churches, but I never knew the details or even the process necessarily that was entailed through all of that. So my only experience with excommunication process has been as an adult in this congregation. And as I recall, I think there were two excommunications since I'm here. Over the last decade, uh, especially with increasing church responsibility, aspect of that Amish mindset approach have troubled me. Um, I believe more strongly than ever that church discipline is vital to the health of the church. My questions have centered more around the shunning and the eating with uh, details of this. If there's no repentance, and say somebody is excommunicated and shunned, if there's no repentance, at what point does that shunning end, if ever? And how do incoming members that have no context even know that this person X from the community is to be shunned? Um, there's just a lot of questions, and those are just a few of the things. And so in these concluding verses here in 1 Corinthians 5, I, I have wrestled with this. I have come back to this numerous times and so forth, but it seems to me that Paul specifically qualifies that this applies to the one who is called a brother. Anyone who bears the name of brother that this is to apply to. To me, that indicates somebody that's within the church. Um, it seems to me and uh, that these verses are stating that the not associating with, the not eating with, including both social interactions as well as communion, the so-called brother, that this happens prior to actual excommunication for a period of time, for a defined period of time, and is part of the disciplinary process. And then when excommunication occurs, this so-called brother is now outside the church and is viewed as any other unbeliever. Obviously, after excommunication, all membership privileges and responsibilities are lifted, including participation in communion, so that aspect does extend beyond um, membership, if you will, beyond the excommunication. Another aspect of this, just to keep in mind, and I, this, is not this is not what I base my conclusions on, but commentators point out that the idea of eating with and associating with as defined, it's a complex, I think the WIS is the way most commentators described it, a complex compound word that is used uh, to describe what this means. And there's a lot of uh, discussion about what that all means. But eating with in the first century in Middle Eastern culture was a lot more than a 30-minute meal or a meeting over coffee. Rather, inviting someone for a meal or sitting down with being invited for a meal indicated a high level of intimacy, friendship, camaraderie, shared values, 
an alignment that was reserved for those closest to you. And so in this context, it's certainly more about the extent of intimate friendship and interaction than whether you're literally seated at the same table or not. Um, and so that's, that is one aspect as well. This book, The Church and the Surprising Offense of God's Love, um, is one of the sources that has been influential in developing my thinking on some of this. Um, and it certainly has developed in me a much stronger understanding of the value of church membership, but also the responsibility of, of church discipline. Now, I want to say very clearly that I realize what I have just stated here as my understanding of some of this is a bit different than what we have practiced in this congregation in the past. And I am not criticizing how this was understood and applied in the past. I am certainly open to even dialogue and have interaction about this. We come from a variety of backgrounds here, and we all have differences in our experiences that shape how we think about some of these things. But I also want to be clear that this is slightly different from our currently stated position in our guidelines. And I want you to know that I am committing, committed to following what we have agreed upon above my personal understanding of this, at least until things are adjusted. And so it's not that I am circumventing what the church has agreed upon. Um, but you know, if there's a time when changes are made, that uh, we can certainly talk about that more. <clears throat> All right, I want to wrap or conclude this. Uh, I mean, there's a number of things here that I want to, uh, to say yet, but I feel like that hopefully expresses and clarifies a bit of my thinking on this and not saying that it's 100% right, and I'm not certainly not dogmatic about that, but it is where my thinking has e is at the moment. Paul begins this chapter with a very blatant, immoral lifestyle that clearly needs to be dealt with. There's no two ways about it. But what I find up, he wrap, find interesting is that he wraps it up by emphasizing a much expanded list of sins that cannot be tolerated in the church. Because um, he lists these things, there's like five or six of them that are listed that you know these are the types of things you should not associate with, you should not eat with. Sexual immorality, and I'm just going to briefly describe these. And this is a broadened definition from the specific situation he's addressing in verse 1. And in today's culture, um, and this is true for all of what we're talking about, but in today's culture, churches are increasingly pressured by society to compromise on biblical truth, or you might say on sin. And, you know, and so uh, for sexual immorality, it's truly, certainly true of immorality. Whether, you know, it's pornography or immodesty or the LGBTQ plus agenda, the cohabitation before or even instead of marriage, divorce and remarriage, you name it, the list goes on and on. All, these are all things that society pressures churches to compromise on. And I believe that that's... Uh, well, we, I don't know that we feel that explicitly here, but at the same time, 
I think that there's certainly that possibility, and we see that in churches around us. Covetous or greed is the next thing that's listed. Someone that claims, someone who claims more than his due, greedy for more, arrogant, one who's covetous. This type of person is not content. More is not enough. Um, so that's the, a type of person that is described here that needs to be dealt with. Idolater, someone who worships idols. And this can be anything in our lives that takes more priority over or away from God. And certainly examples, there's a lot. We don't have the idols sitting in our houses, so to speak, but work, career, materialism, our toys, whatever that may be, sports, politics, leisure, the list could go on and on of things that rob us of our priority with God. Railer or reviler, someone who speaks badly of others, a slanderer, an abusive person, one who insults, has to do with our language. Drunkard, Someone who's a heavy drinker, an alcoholic, or drunk, that's pretty obvious. Addicted to liquor. I think this could be broadened to just simply addictions uh, that it applies to, certainly. Extortion, swindler, someone who steals from another. Someone who's vicious, destructive, violently greedy, savage. As you can tell, the, this list certainly expands the scope of sins that Paul says needs to be dealt with within the church. And it's not comprehensive. But the reality is God can't tolerate sin. And any sin that is not repented of will contaminate and sicken the body of Christ. Now, I want to wrap up here with, this is somewhat of a negative chapter, if you will, in a lot of ways. But the reality is, Sin can also be forgiven. Even though sin must be dealt with in the church, including the removal of unrepentant members, that should not be the focus. The focus is to restore such an individual into fellowship with God. It's about redeeming us from the grip of sin, the power to live in victory over sin. In fact, there's many commentators and scholars that believe that this man did in fact repent and was restored in the church as it's not a direct relationship but 2 Corinthians 2 if you read that uh, it seems like it could be certainly referring to this specific situation I have three things that I believe that we need to do in relation to sin being forgiven first is to acknowledge sin for what it is before we can confess sin before we can repent of it we have to realize how sin is incompatible with God and then when we have a proper understanding of how offensive sin is to God, we know that we have to take action. And when we characterize sin in our lives as weakness or personality or perspective or opinion, we cannot and we never will be able to deal with it properly uh, if we don't call it sin. Sin is sin. Lying is not just stretching the truth. It's lying, and we need to call things what it is. Just because something is legal doesn't make it justifiable. That doesn't make it not sin, just because uh, it's legal to do something. The man in verse 1 did not understand 
how God looked at his sin, I don't believe. And that's why he acted the way he did. But Romans 3 tells us that all have sinned and fall short. Like David, we have to come to a point, come to God in a contrite heart and just acknowledge, I have sinned and I've done this evil in your sight. The second piece is to confess sin. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we call sin what it is and confess it to God, there is forgiveness. We have that assurance. Recently, I've been convicted that if there's a, that there's a lot of value in also confessing sins to a fellow believer. There's just something about it that adds accountability and responsibility to me if I confess it to another believer. Not that it brings forgiveness, but it does deepen relationships with each other and I believe is valuable in a church setting. The third aspect then is to repent and or make restitution. There may be times when confession before God is not all that is needed. You know, repentance requires the changing of our behavior. Um, you know, it's making a U-turn. And so if I confess a covetous heart to God, he will forgive that. However, if the focus of my heart doesn't change, I, it's going to be repetitive, repetitive, repetitive. We need to repent of that, and we need our heart to focus uh, on away from what I don't have and to instead be grateful for what I do have and make that an ongoing and intentional part of my life to overcome a covetous heart. Other times, even though God forgives our sin, he may require that we make restitution. Sin has consequences, and sometimes there's a steep price to pay. If I steal something of value from someone, then quickly confess it as sin, does that mean I can keep it? You know, no. I mean, repentance is, is turning away from that, and then restitution is also making that right and, and taking steps to make right what was wronged. So in conclusion, the church has been delegated the authority and the power to deal with sin within the church. The goal of church discipline is always to restore the fallen to full fellowship with God. There's multiple steps in the process ending with the removal from church if unrepentant. Church discipline along with membership are necessary and critical responsibilities of the church. Sin shames and brings reproach on the name of Jesus Christ and his body. It cannot be tolerated and overlooked regardless who it is. Sin contaminates the body of Christ just like leaven does. Affects all the dough. Like cancer affects the entire human body, sin infects the entire church body. And sin has consequences. It requires uh, removal from church if not repented of. But sins can also be forgiven. Acknowledge it as sin, confess it, Confess your sin, repent, and make restitution. And my challenge to you this morning is let's be a church. Let's be the body of Christ that embodies these principles and does not allow sin to contaminate the body of believers, this body of believers. I'd like for you to stand for a benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, 
majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. You are dismissed.